are back for another episode of the Freewheeling Podcast. We got Amy Jones in her overalls. Hungaries, where I'm from. But yeah, thanks. Lauren, do they also call them dungarees in Australia? Uh, I think so. I don't know. It's not a word I adopted. Overalls is South African, so my my mum used to dress me when I was younger, so I'm guessing I probably adopted the overalls. But you look super cute, Amy. I can't wear them. My body's too long and it just looks weird. I think they look good on tall people. Not on me. (laughs) (laughs) So to kick things off this episode, let's go over a little bit of, well, the one race that we had since the last podcast that we recorded was the Festival Elsa Jacobs. There's not a ton to talk about for this race, I think, except to give props where props is due to Emma Norsgaard for finally taking her first victory and then her second victory of the year in a row and winning the general classification, the young riders classification and the sprint points so snaps i can't i can only snap with one hand (laughs) (laughs) i didn't realize that was a thing Hmm. the the day that really stood out for me was the final day and there was live coverage of all three of the stages which we talked about last time and was awesome but the final day was so aggressive i mean there was so many moves that that went and i was thinking oh this this could be a big move this could be the winning move oh it looks like it snapped and it and emma was really incredible in especially at the end when her teammates weren't really around her anymore being able to kind of fuse things back together or jump on moves that she could she could try to, you know, sneak into. But overall, I thought it was a great race. What did you guys think? Um, she's had such a long spring and she's been impressive throughout the spring. So for me, that in itself, for, for a young rider to be able to, what we started the, at the end of February and she's just been probably the most consistent rider. And then to show up at Luxembourg and, and win the tour was just amazing. And like you said, Abby, really cool to see her get that. The big win, finally. Yeah. I'd say the other noteworthy thing to come out of that race was um, Lorena Vibes. Um, I mean, she won the prologue and she looked really strong. Um, and then, unfortunately, she crashed during the first stage pretty badly. But she did so well to get back on and then just, like, work for her teammates. Um, it was a pretty, like, stunning image of her in the yellow jersey like with it all cut up it was yellow right yeah the leader's jersey <laughs> um <laughs> all cut up if in doubt say yellow like cut up on her shoulder and like I think her leg as well but and she looked she'd obviously decided that like she wasn't going to be able to sprint so she just work and then I think she actually pulled out halfway through the second stage but um yeah that was really impressive from her yeah, agreed. And a, kind of an elusive victory for Team DSM. We haven't quite seen them up there in the races at all this year. I mean, they've got Juliette Lebu has been kind of in and around there. And Leanne Lippert um, had a really great season last year, but this year hasn't quite been up there again. So intra- it, it was bound to happen sooner or later they won a stage of um the healthy aging tour earlier in the year but this is now dsm's only second victory of the year i'm pretty sure which is 
kind of bizarre when you think about how that team, how big that team used to be. I mean, when they were Sunweb and they were really, really one of the top teams and now they've kind of been shuffled down in the rankings. Mm. Yeah, they had a couple of years there where they were super dominant. Like, um, I'm trying to think, 2017 was a standout year for them. But, of course, they still had Ellen Van Dyke on the team then. So there's been a lot of shifting around. We do still see a lot of the familiar faces. Haven't seen much for, from Karin Rivera this year. Um, and, yeah, Leah Kirchman, nice to see her on the podium. But, um, yeah, it's interesting dynamic because I guess a lot of the same riders are still there but it just doesn't seem to quite I don't know not that it's not gelling but sometimes this happens with teams but the same is happening almost with the men's team right yeah it's true and I mean there's all types of rumors that fly around when it comes to that team and and riders not being happy and we've seen on the men's side a lot of riders have left and on the women's side as well but I think, I don't know, they still always manage to pick up riders. They picked up Megan Jastrab. She's an incredible young talent. And maybe they just need to focus a little bit more on the, the younger riders and try to bring up a team of development, of, of riders that are going to develop into something. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is for them. It's, it's kind of an interesting pickle that they've got themselves in at the moment. Because you would have thought, you know, when they picked up Lorena after all of that debacle with, uh, with Park Hotel, that she was really going to hold the team on her shoulders with everything that they went through to get her. And even though she won the prologue and she won that stage of healthy aging tour and wait, she won another race in, in the mid season. Yeah. She won. Sh- sh- mm-hmm. So this was their third win and they're all Lorena. So she is still kind of holding that that team on her shoulders, but you, I still, I think I would have expected to see her play a bigger role in some of the other bigger races, like some of the other world tour races. Fascinating. Yeah, exactly. But this was a discussion we had last year when we get all excited with the transfer season that, mm-hmm. okay, we've seen Demi Vollering just step it up a whole nother level moving to bowls, but sometimes moving to a bigger team isn't necessarily the best rider. Um, best move for a rider's development. I mean, I, I can become, I can have a biased point of view of this, but I know what management is like within that team. And sometimes I think that doesn't work well with certain riders. Um, and maybe that's just something we're seeing there, but I don't want to put my personal opinion into it too much. I mean, they're kind of known to be one of the more controlling teams of the Peloton when it comes to just monitoring all of the fact. Yeah. They, they monitor everything from, from the rider's weight to their diet, to their training. And I think for some riders it works and, and for others, maybe, maybe it doesn't. So I think on the, on the conversation of teams, it's interesting uh, to talk about Movistar because Emma Norsgaard, at the beginning of the season, I wrote an article about the best transfers before the season had started. And I got a little bit of, a little bit of heat because I had wanted to put Emma Norsgaard as one of the biggest transfers of the season. And I kind of left Anamique out because there'd already been a ton talked about her transfer. There'd already been a ton of 
of uh, speculating and excitement about Anamik moving to Movistar, but I maintain that my most exciting transfer, my two most exciting transfers of the year are Demi and, and Emma. And this really was a race for Emma where she proved that she is one of going to be one of those huge riders of the future. And it was like a very beautiful moment when she finally won that race and surrounded by her teammates and taking photos and everything. I mean, I think it was, it was just a matter of time until it was going to happen. And now that's finally happened. Yeah. I expect to see more from her. Yeah. And she won that second, well, the first road stage by a country mile. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She took off and it was like <laughs> a ways. <laughs> and then to yeah. win on the second day as well, after such a hard day um, with like you said, Abby's such an aggressive race. She's an incredible type talent and probably she'll be like our, perhaps our standout rider for, for 2021 that we always go on about, that there's that one rider who just like steps it up. Although Demi Vollering, it would be in the mix too. So good job, Abby. With <laughs> yes, your thank picks. You, thank you. You know, you know your stuff. Well, the next race we got coming up is Valencia, the uh, four-day stage race in Spain. Anamik Van Vluten will be there, and it's a pretty hilly race. From the start, the first stage has four categorized climbs and then more climbs that are not categorized. The second day is another day full of climbing. The third day, potentially a sprint, but there's still a good bit of climbing, so it might be just a small group. And then the fourth day is more climbing, more climbing. So four days of pretty pretty hard racing coming up for the women in Valencia and... Um, I haven't seen the full start list, but it's kind of hard to look past Anamique when there's that much climbing involved. <laughs> Plus, a lot of people, I think, are taking a break at this point, getting ready for the one days and the um, Vuelta Burgos coming up later in the month. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people have skipped. Whereas, like, I think Valencia attracts, like, a really high-quality um, field early in the season because it's, like, one of the few races at that time. And I think now, I think people have looked at that whole block in Spain this month and I think maybe some of the people who might have raced it in February have decided not to because there's yeah there's like two weeks worth of racing over Burgos way mm-hmm. before yeah. the world tour race. yeah we'll we'll talk about yeah we'll get into the um world tour the world tour race days that we talked about last episode I think it's a good thing to kind of bring up again with a week's worth of thought put into it but the fact that the amount of racing that we just had over the spring was a lot. And so it doesn't, it makes sense to me that people would want to take a break, a little bit of a break now. And I think they would have anyway, even if we hadn't had races postponed to the, the races that have been postponed. This is like a great time to take a break. Yeah, I think we've seen, well, at least on social media, a lot of riders going back to their home countries and having a bit of me time. And that's classic for for, for May. Um, It's when the really big riders who had a heavy spring campaign might have three to five days off and then start settling into that next part of the season. And, of course, we've got the Olympics coming up um, at the end of July, start of August. So that will be a big goal for some of the riders that we're not seeing now. Um, And this is a perfect opportunity, like we've said, for the riders who've been more in the domestique 
type positions to to have a crack and it's finally a race longer than a couple of days long so um really looking forward to that and seeing some different names at the front along the conversation of world tour race days that we have from now until tokyo how many are there amy five (laughs) five that's five and which races are they amy (laughs) Oh, how long have you got this list? No, um, there's four days of racing at Burgos at the end of this month. And then one, that's one day of La Course, which has already been shifted because everybody knows La Course is an afterthought. Did I just say that? <laughs> so we started this conversation last episode and just the way that we do this podcast is we have a little bit of, you know, as James likes to say, how the sausage is made, um, which always grosses me out. So I I feel like there should be a better saying for that. (laughs) But the way that the podcast is made is we kind of make a list of the racing that happened and any relevant news. And then we'll kind of start on those topics. But the way that we work is we, we tend to find topics within those topics and spin off on tangents and into other worlds. <laughs> and that's pretty much <laughs> what's hap- what happened last time. And I sometimes I think it's relevant to bring up the conversations that we find ourselves talking about um, with a little bit more context. And this is one of the t- those times. So since we talked about um, the lack of world tour days for the women from now until Tokyo, but also, uh, just the lack of stage races for the women. I called up Scott Sunderland, who works with Cadell Evans, great ocean road race and Flanders classics to chat about what it takes to put on a world tour race and maybe why we don't see more women's races at that caliber. So let's hear what Scott and I talked about. So the reason that I wanted to chat with you today was because on the Freewheeling podcast last week, we were chatting Mm -hmm. about the women's world tour calendar and how from now until the Olympics, there's only five days of women's world tour racing. And that includes um, a stage race. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk to you because working with Cadell Evans, Great Ocean Road Race, you understand what it means to put together a race. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to start out by asking, what does it take to put on a UCI race? Okay, well, first of all, um, I don't only do the Cadell Evans Grosjean Road Races, so which is four in total for the week. I'm also a race director for all of Flanders Classics Road Races. So that means all the women's and the men's races. So uh, I do all the men's races uh, on the day, but I do... um, uh, I oversee all the uh, courses and uh, all the organizing with my colleagues um, for the women's races as well. So when we do the men's races, uh, we do their courses. Uh, I do it always in, in, in mind of, of the women's race that needs to coincide with it. Mm. Uh, also with the start times and finishes, etc. So I do that. But I'm also race director for London Marathon Events races which is ride london um so i'm also working for them so i have uh, three uh three different organizers three different uh, contracts uh in the role as race director for all those events wow that's a lot so, yes. 
I do a lot for women's racing. Yeah. <laughs> and know a lot about World Tour, Pro Series, and 1.1 um, racing for both men's and women's. So you've been kind of firsthand in Flanders Classics um, move this year to make all of the men's races have a women's race as well. Yeah. Well, look, to, to be honest, um, if we go back, backtrack back to 2014 and 15 when we started the Cadillac and Scratch and Road Race, uh, I think we were actually we were ahead of the curve uh, at that point, and it's good that you you actually start off with that one because um, there was very few uh, women's uh, world tour races uh, and and race organisers planning to have women's racing. Flanders Classics at that point did have a women's uh, world tour race uh, on the day of Tour of Flanders, and they had a, um, also a women's race for the Omelette Pet Newsblood, and also again we have again. So they did run three. Now they've got uh, six with the uh, potential going through to have uh, eight in 2022. Before the Cadell Evans Question Road Race, we, um, from the outset, we wanted a women's race. Uh, it was never not going to be a women's race. Um, of course, it was difficult to, to have it on the same level as the men's uh, at that point, purely because the uh, depth and breadth of the teams wasn't quite there uh, and they just didn't quite have the... Uh, the riders and, and the money to be able to do too much international travel. But in saying that, our goal at the uh, Visit Victoria and, and the Cadillac Discretion Road Race was to have a quality from the start as much as we could uh, and to do the same for the women's uh, event as what we do for the men's. Um, we started off also to have the women's race on the Saturday so they stood alone and not being in any way or shape of, uh, uh, of all to um, any in shape or form to, to really a, uh, a support race to the men's. It was purely to a standalone. Hence why we have the, uh, the people's ride the morning of the women's race mm. uh, and the women's race afterwards, um, really to showcase what uh, women's racing is about and, and, the, and the stars of women's racing, particularly the, the Australian uh, uh, women's racing uh, where we have so much talent. How much of a difference is it between putting races on for Flanders Classics and, and for Cadell's? Because I imagine that the difference between holding a race in Australia and holding a race in Belgium is very, very different. It's, it's a lot different. First of all, uh, logistics just to get everybody out to Australia. Um, and, of course, with that is, is a massive cost. Um, I mean, we would not be able to have teams, uh, women's teams who only have budgets of one to two million euros uh, when they have to spend a big portion of that budget just to get to Australia and to stay there. So that means organisers need to be able to cover all those types of costs, which you know makes it very expensive as the organisers. Um, this is something that, that uh, Viz Victoria um, wanted to invest in uh, for women's racing and cycling. Um, we also had uh, one of the first events to have equal prize money, um, first event in Australia to have equal prize money to the men's. Um, so that was a big thing. And, and we were really wanting to bridge that gap um, uh, in equality. Um, that was one of our missions from, from the get-go uh, with the event. Um, and as you say, yeah, it's a lot more difficult to, uh, to have women's teams participating in Australia than what it is to, for example, Flanders Classics, where... Uh, logistics is uh, a lot, a uh, lot less, um, less hours travelled, uh, less cost involved, um, and they can get uh, quite a few races within a, a two-week period. 
uh, while being in Belgium or, or etc. So um, it did make it a lot easier uh, to have races here. But you know what? The teams love going to Australia. Whether you know the, the whole uh, selection of races, Tour Down Under, and then with the Cadell Evans Groschen Road Race and Race Torquay, uh, which was the uh, inaugural event in, in 2020, they just love it. And yeah, they're keen to come back. Oh, absolutely. I know from experience, uh, having raced Tour Down Under and um, been present at Cadell's race, going down to Australia to race those races was so worth it. And what was really cool was having the selection of world tour teams that were there for the women. And then also having the smaller teams and the racing wasn't quite as chaotic as in Europe. So it was such a nice Mm -hmm. opening to, it was hard racing, but it was such a nice start to the year and having the races in January down there. I mean, racing in Europe in January, it's freezing cold. (laughs) The weather is horrendous, but Australia was beautiful. So as a rider, I know that they, we like love going there and then, the added benefit is how well the races are put on. I mean, I could, you could tell as a rider how much was, how much thought was put into Cadell's race and how well the women were taken care of at the race that, Hmm. yeah, you felt really cared for, which was really, really nice. Um, what do you know? Do you have an idea of what kind of, not financially, like exactly the numbers, but what it takes to make a race from say pro series to world tour and how straining that is on a race promoter or the race organizers. Yeah, look, um, the first thing is that uh, to make that step from, for, for example, pro series, uh, to world tour is the cost involved, um, for the uh, licensing, uh, to be world tour. Also, the demands that once you become World Tour, you need to be able to invite all World Tour teams. So that means that, uh, uh, you know, you need to, to invite all of them. Plus, if you want some more teams, then you need to take extra on top. So for each World Tour team, there's a minimum um, uh, cost involved um, for them for their participation, uh, but also to, to get them there. Um, so, yeah, there is some added cost to it. Uh, but in the same token, uh, we're all about doing major events. In, in Victoria, um, so it's very important for us to have the best teams possible competing there with the best riders possible competing there. It doesn't always sit with the rider's um, racing schedule and his, his program in preparation, or sorry, her program in her preparation. You did mention before for the Olympics, some riders may choose not to have quite a, uh, a brisk start, so they may choose to prefer to stay in Europe, uh, for example, uh, to prepare for the Olympics or World Championships or, or you know, um, Tour of Italy or whatever it may be further down the track. But uh, for some riders, and uh, I must say a lot of riders, particularly the classics riders, they do love being there because, uh, as you just mentioned before, great weather, uh, great food, uh, accommodation, um, et cetera, and really, really good organisation. I mean, we really do uh, pride ourselves in, in thinking of everything and ticking every box and uh, in particularly around uh, equality, uh, between women's and men's racing, um, but also to you know have live television, which we do. We have live broadcasting for the women's race um, with um, presentations, etc. All involved. We do a lot of other fun activities uh, in the lead up to the races, um, and you know we uh, yeah we pride ourselves on it. You know um, we want to you know uh, 
create equality right across the board and, and uh, especially an opportunity uh, for women's cycling because we all feel that the women's cycling, um, and I know myself that it's true, that the uh, growth curve of women's cycling is, is very steep at the moment. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, we're closing the gap, and I keep using that term, closing the gap, uh, to men's cycling and, and generally in professional sport for women um, very quickly in cycling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could have a little bit to do with COVID at the moment, but the interest in women's cycling and, and women getting uh, involved in cycling and participating in cycling uh, is being very uh, encouraging. And um, I'm uh, really keen to watch this space for women's cycling moving forward. Do you think that the growth in this sport might see more women's world tour races crop up in the future? Yeah, look, I think what we've got to be careful of here, Abby, is is the growth of the sport, um, what organisers uh, are able to do, because as you mentioned, it, it is uh, financially a lot of money to, to get into a World Tour event, um, because with the World Tour event, you have got some obligations to meet, as I just mentioned, uh, financial obligations towards the teams, uh, accommodation, logistics, uh, travel, etc., um, but also uh, broadcasting. I mean, there's no use of uh, investing all that money if you can't uh, obtain a good broadcaster and get it live on television. Uh, so there needs to be a minimum requirement there. Uh, so live television plus highlights packages. Um, but we're seeing a lot of uh, interest uh, across all the uh, channels for women's cycling. And the women's cycling has become very exciting. I think that's also due to organisers being a little bit smarter and, and getting good feedback, which I've always tried to do with the Goodell's races. I'm pat myself on the back here, but I've always involved the teams in the course designs, talk to them about it so that uh, whether it's in January or whether it's here in Belgium in the classics, that we're ticking the boxes for those teams, what they're needing and what they're looking for, what's too much and what's not enough uh, so that uh, we can have the most exciting uh, race possible. Uh, for the for the riders, first of all, and second of all, for the spectators and fans. Awesome. So we're on the up, but we do have to just be where, aware of... Yeah, so yeah. we do need to be aware because if we get more racing, that does particularly make it uh, mean that it's going to be better. Um, the teams at the moment, I, I mentioned earlier before, Women's teams do have limited budgets for the moment, but there is becoming more and more uh, uh, sponsorships and, and corporate interest into women's racing. So with that growth and with the, the uh, um, extra financial backing these teams are starting to get, they're able to get to the point where hopefully they'll have a dual program, racing program. So that means they're going to need in the vicinity of 16 riders to 18 riders, whereas most teams now are running at a lean 10 to 12 riders. Uh, so that way they always have a few reserve, whether on altitude training or, or just home ill injured. Mm-hmm. Um, but once they move into that double program, then, yeah, there will be uh, possibilities to run more races, which will give more choices to riders. And riders will, as we see now, tend to do pretty much all races, all types of races. Then we'll start seeing some specific uh, designs like the men where they're uh, sprinters and they're pure sprinters, so they're mainly just doing uh, sprinters-type races or classics riders who are just purely doing the cobblestones and the Ardennes races, et cetera, more specialisations. Um, and I, that's where I see that this is uh, going to lead to with the women's racing uh, with more interest and, and um, more financial backing coming into it. Yeah, I think something that we talk about quite often on the podcast is the fact that women's racing, there's less races, so we see all the big names at the races, which makes their kind of mm-hmm. a linear storyline throughout the season that 
you can't have with the men's racing because there's so many players in the game. Um, yeah, but I, you, you're wrong. But, but that's good in one way because the quality is always there mm-hmm. at the races, which is great to, to initiate the growth of women's racing. But you are right. Also, we need more depth and breadth across the women's teams, which is also happening. I mean, if we could run some data on, on the progress of women's cycling, particularly the teams, over the last five years, I think it would be very, very interesting to see, particularly uh, the international growth uh, right across the board because we're seeing some very, very talented young women uh, turning pro and, and uh, very young and performing at the top uh, at a very young age. Yeah, I think that there's there's pretty hard evidence that the Peloton is the most international we've seen it ever, it, just based on the top teams and how diverse those teams are in terms of nationalities. Yep, yep. And look, we, we look at Movistar, who's traditionally always been a, a Spanish-based team, uh, partly due because their sponsors, etc., particularly in the men's. Um, but look at the women's team, you know, mm. they're, they're really looking at uh, international stars to... Uh, to you know, look at those positions within the team that they don't have uh, nationally within Spain, and and that's exciting. It's you know they are an international team, and uh, and you know we see Francis de Jure, which is predominantly French, but with the women's teams, they're, they're really having a lot of their stars and top riders who are international. So um, it's great to see. I'm I'm very excited about uh, women's cycling and, and the progress it's made. Uh, some people are sort of, ah, oh, yeah, they need to catch up. I said, whoa, hang on. I mean, I've seen men's cycling take a long, long time to get to where it is today. And and men's cycling teams needed to be where they are today 15, 20 years ago. Mm, yeah. If, if we're realistic about it. Yeah. So I know in comparison, yes, women's cycling uh, and teams are way uh, behind still. But I tell you, men's cycling has been behind for many, many years when you compare to other sports. Do you think there's so, a, um, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was, right? um, was going to ask, do you think there's a benefit to having races alongside the men's races versus like standalone women's races? I think there's probably a benefit to both sides, but it feels like, especially in COVID times, it's easier to put on a race if there's a men's race going on at the same time or the next day. Well, there's efficiencies of resource. So, I mean, if we're going to be setting up, uh, for example, Cadillac and Scratch and Rose, we've got all the gantries and barricades and everything is there. So to run a women's race next to the men's, you know, literally the day before, um, makes sense. There is some a few extra costs, you know, because you, you're manning both days, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of the, uh, the physical resource and materials that are, are there, uh, so you do create some, some efficiencies. Mm. Um, by having that. Uh, a lot of the times why the women's races run on the same day as the men's um, is purely, purely to, like in Europe particularly, so they can have the women's race on a Sunday. It makes it a little bit easier having it on the same day due to uh, traffic. It's been really interesting uh, how um, a lot of the Flanders Classics races have run the women's race after the men's race. Yeah, that's why, because we've seen a doubling in viewers. Yeah, Having the women's race finish after the men's, even though there's only an hour of it shown live, um, so a little bit less than potentially it could have been done if it's run on a separate day, but the viewership has just been uh, great. And a lot of people, um, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of it, have been very happy to stay on and watch the women's race after the men's. Um, they've been just as excited to see the women's race 
uh, as what they have been for the men's, which is very encouraging and just proves, goes to prove that, that the women's cycling is on the up uh, and there is uh, um, great interest. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and for chatting with me. Hopefully we'll speak again soon. Yeah, no problem, Abby. Anytime, look, um, whether it's men's or women's racing, uh, uh, we'd love to love to chat and, and share my thoughts. And um, I can definitely say that we're working hard at Biz Victoria now at, uh, at uh, getting ready for, for 2022 Cadell Evans Road Race and the Deakin University uh, Elite Women's Road Race um, next year in January. So, um, yeah, watch your space. Yeah, I um, hopefully we can, we journalists can be there too because I remember the chocolate. <laughs> everybody remembers the chocolate particularly the women because that's one thing that the women actually got to do that the men didn't do is get to visit the uh, talky chocolate factory i can guarantee so, that we enjoyed it and also appreciated it a lot more than the men potentially would have <laughs> <laughs> well like all riders all cyclists uh, you do the keys to to work it all off so uh, yeah. a little bit of self-indulgence is uh, is good for the mind as much as it is for the body and the uh, Chocolate, when it's a pure chocolate form like they do, and I know a lot about chocolate after living in Belgium for so many years, is actually not as bad for you as what uh, a lot of people think. Oh, if I've learned anything on this discussion, then that is the best part. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much. No problem, Abby. Take care. It really all comes down to money. And when it's a world tour race, the organizers are in charge of making, getting the teams to the race, uh, to a certain extent, they're in charge of paying for all of the accommodation. They have to pay for a certain number of more motorbikes, more police cars, more road closures, more, basically just a lot more needs to be put into place to upgrade a race from a pro series race to a world tour race, which we could have expected that. Um, and also the cost of the UCI license for it to be a world tour race. And then on top of that is the cost of the live coverage, something that I'm not even going to, I don't think it's worth debating about live coverage and how expensive live coverage is. It, I, I know that it costs a lot of money. We all know it costs money to have live coverage. If the Healthy Aging Tour and Els and Jacobs can figure out how to have live coverage of all of their stages, then there is no excuse for a world tour race not to be able to have live coverage. There's just no excuse, and we're not going to debate it. But it was interesting to talk to him about all of the additional costs and everything that comes along with the world tour race that we, we may not imagine. And he works with both the Flanders Classics and Cadell Evans, Great, Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race, and... It also comes as no surprise to me that it was it costs like three times as much to have a race in Australia than it does in the U.S. or in Europe. Where am I? Than it does in Europe. <laughs> it was an interesting conversation. I thought it was just worth having because we talk about these things, but there's also there's more to it than I think we know. With regards to having more world tour races, isn't necessarily always the answer in terms of development of our sport just because like we had that discussion offline um currently there's 99 uci races for the women 71 of which are in europe and of those races only 21 are 1.2s which means that 
all these UCI teams that aren't world tour teams basically can only show up now to what I would say is a handful of racing. If you think that the calendar goes from, let's say February to October now, um, which means there's, that there's not many opportunities for these riders to show themselves. And as you know, um, you've both been on teams that aren't world tour teams and we're very much dependent on these races to, to get, you know, some coverage for those riders. So there's an opportunity for them to be seen and potentially picked up, gain experience riding against these top riders. Um, and so th- this is a bit of an issue too. Yeah, I mean, like development is a huge problem in general, like even in terms of, I mean, where do you even start? It goes from the, the teams and the quality of the setups of the teams and the way the riders are treated and the amount of races that are available and like the way that it, the problem is it, it starts from the top even because if there's a lack of world tour racing and there's a lack of, of racing for the, the top, top level riders, then they're going to come. So the races that are lower down the ranks, so they are going to go to like Valencia. And I always joke about the fact that I got my head kicked in there as a club rider. But if I was genuinely trying to like, do, if I was younger and I was really trying to develop as a rider, if that's a 2.2 race and there's like world champions and former world champions like there, and I get absolutely like flattened, what did I learn? how to get dropped, which is basically all I ever learned. But like, it's funny for me, but not for someone who's seriously trying to, to develop in the sport. And I think it needs to start from the top as well. And I think also there does need to be like a structured development pathway and not just like a load of lower level races and a load of dodgy continental teams. Um, and also I think the discourse around races needs to change from, I think a lot of people, we need to stop seeing races as like acts of charity by organizers. I think a lot of people go, oh, but they're putting on a race anyway. And it's kind of like, well, would you rather have a really poorly organized race that doesn't do justice to the people that are turning up to it and maybe isn't safe or doesn't give exposure? Because if a load of women do a race in isolation and no one can see it it's like did a bear shit in the woods you know or whatever that phrase is it's like the whole point the whole like model financial model of the sport is sponsorship and exposure for those sponsors and if they're not getting it then what's the point and so it world tour races that can't or even two even um pro level races or even one one point ones like if they aren't producing live coverage or even highlights, or if they aren't treating the riders as professionals, then just don't, don't have the race. Like if you can't afford to do all those things, then why are you coming here and saying, okay, I'm going to put on this race then? Like what's the incentive for anyone? Like, I mean, I was watching the highlights with my boyfriend of, of tour of Rwanda yesterday. And that's a, really I don't know what the, what level it is but it's just full of like continental teams you've never heard of and like national teams and but they're getting exposure on like GCN 
on the men's side there and you that's like unheard of in the women's sorry I went off on one there I know what you mean though but like the the race for example the 2.2 in the Czech Republic would never be on GCN yeah yeah that race is an awesome race yeah it is it's a hard race it's really really fun actually um, but those are some really valid points. And I think everything you just said, Amy, pretty much just summed up the Giro Rosa, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, it's like we were saying offline, it's the history behind this race, right? So if that race was taken away completely off the calendar, there would have been, we saw it on social media last year, really disgruntled riders because to win a stage of Giro Rosa is still such a big thing to have in your Palmares. Yet, like you said, um, quite often you show up to that race and the stage isn't what you thought it was. Um, you know, the sometimes the I think they were like 10 to 15 kilometres longer, the stages, or it's not safe or there's zero coverage. I mean, to try and figure out who won the race you're dependent on mechanics and Swanier's tweeting on Twitter, which you never would see for a grand tour for the men's race. So, yeah, some yeah. really valid points there. Um, I think when it, when it comes to the Giro Rosa and cycling in general, there's this, this history and this culture around cycling that's really been kind of drilled into the sport for a really long time. And we see it more so on the men's side to, to the detriment of the sport. And on the women's side, I think one of the reasons that we are growing so much faster than the men's side, I mean, if you think about it, the amount of growth we've seen in the women's Peloton in the last three years, it's kind of insane. If you look at the last, the 10 years before that, you know, mm-hmm the last three years has really elevated the sport and especially this year and last year, it's been completely flipping the sport around, making the sport way more professional. And we can talk about the the disparity between the teams because that's still a huge problem. I mean, there's still a ton of problems, but when it comes to the history of the sport, yes, there are things that we, we should keep, you know, that have always been a part of cycling. There's things that make this sport what it is. And I don't think they should change, but when it comes to races like the Giro Rosa, it, it's not, if we are sitting here being like, but there's history behind it, but it means so much. It's like, no, we can change that. We don't have to, if the tradition is shitty and we don't agree with it and it's, it, they're only the, they are only the way that they are because they're the only women's race that's 10 days. Like, no, we don't, we're at a point in the sport, I think, uh, in the women's side of it, at least, where we have so much leeway now to change the way the sport goes in the future, that if we keep, if we keep putting Jira Rosa on this pedestal, because it's the longest stage race the women have, we're going to be in a situation like the men's Peloton is in where if they change anything, people freak out and like, it is the way it is. And it's raced the way it's raced. And the reason people are so are just so excited about Matthew Vanderpool and Wout Van Aert is because they're doing things differently. Mm-hmm. It's new and it's shiny. I think that's why people are excited about it. But mm-hmm. there's so many people on social media and stuff that are like, oh, we love the sprinting days at the at the Grand Tours where they let a break go and they get 20 minutes and then they, they bring it back and it's a sprint. And they love that and they don't want it to change. 
And we don't uh, want to here in women's cycling. <laughs> Amy's face is like, what? Um, are they insomniacs? There are people that like is, those. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's people that I mean, they that they like. They're so stuck in the history of the sport. I don't know. Like, I feel like I've gone off on a tangent that I haven't even made my point. But there's so many people that are like stuck in the history of the sport that they're just impeding its ability to grow. Uh, you there, and that's kind of why they're stuck with the ASO, right? men's mm. cycling in a sense they're tied to that association that they've just they've got control almost but they don't have for just example the aso doesn't have the same hold over women's cycling do they no we, are, we are free. actually are so free and see we I mean, managed to bring them into the conversation oh <laughs> i just wanted to add like if you want to talk about like you know the history of the sport and changing things like I only recently found out via a piece that I read um about a women's race that used to exist in the US called the Ida, um that there used to be I think I mentioned this last week I'm not sure mm-hmm. there used yeah. to be all these races that were way longer than 10 days and then the UCI like uh, then all of that sort of contracted in the late 1990s and then in the 2000s the UCI were like oh no women can't race longer than six days but the Giro was the exception I'm not sure why and that's how it's been since then and and no one's really like and first of all no one really talks about that history so it's as if like women's cycling is is on like a upward trajectory from from some point in like I don't know the mid-20th century but everyone forgets that there was a moment there in like the 80s and 90s where it was better well in a lot of ways, as in there were more racing, there was more challenging mm-hmm. racing than there is today. Mm, and yeah. I'm outraged by that because I only just found that out. And like, why is no one talking about it? I mean, there used to be like the women's uh, Rue de France that was like along along the women's Tour de France that was, it, it used to exist. It was a yeah. thing. Yeah. And then also in like the 80s, to, I think. To shift it. I think that's what happened. They moved the women's Tour de France to a different time of the year. And then eventually it morphed into maybe the Route de France. But then they also had that Tour de Lode, which was a super mm. hard race. And the very best climbers in the world showed up to that. That's where Evelyn Stevens essentially got found. Um, and that was 2009. So, but that fell away by 2010 or 2011. And that was, yeah, another grand tour essentially. And then we were just left with, when I started in 2012, I guess we had the Giro and Turrigan, and Turrigan never had the status it deserved. Um, and even over the years, it sort of lost its appeal because of the clash with the Giro. At one point, it was starting, I think, a day after, so then you weren't getting the big teams there anymore. I was trying to find where in this um, this UCI guide it says that there's a limit on the number of days that the women are allowed to have in a stage race it's it's definitely in there i saw it the other day it's like it does say it can't be longer than than six days unless they get special dispensation why is that still in there i don't understand it think of the sport of iron man right from the very get-go the first iron man they ever held in the 80s a woman was a part of that i think there were like 10 people that did it or something um that's always just a, a interesting point to go back to i find like i think the key thing sorry no you go i'm going on i was gonna 
Well, I was just going to say, I think the key thing with that is that it's newer, right? So there's no like fuzzy old men in white men in suits to say like, no, it's always been this way or like, and the, if you look back at the history of, of women's sport in general, I mean, they stopped, they wouldn't let women run marathons because they thought their uterus would fall out, like literally. And it's going back to that, I think. But then my question around the UCI adding that is why did they have a period where women did race longer and, and then it. suddenly decide, no, they can't anymore. Like that's... Yeah, that's... They want control. Hmm. But that is the interesting point. Like you said, they were doing it. And at what point did they just go, oh, no, there's scientific evidence to suggest they shouldn't be? Hmm. Yeah. I think what's important about this whole conversation and the conversation I had with Scott, one of the big takeaways that I took away from that is that there's been this really interesting thing in the last year that might coincide a little bit with COVID, but it's also just the culmination of years and years of the women's Peloton pushing for more live coverage and more professionalism within the sport. Is that last year during the pandemic, we had a ton of women's races that were live. It was kind of the first year in a really long time where it was weirder not to have a race live than to have live coverage. Cause like Lauren and I have talked about when we first started podcasting back in 2017, if we, if there was a race that was live, we would be like so excited about it. And last year, almost every world tour race with the exception of the Jarrah Rosa was live. And because everyone was in the middle of a pandemic, a ton of sports were canceled. A lot of people were restless. They were spending a lot of time at home. So more people were around when these races were live and they got to see it because of that. There's been this huge growth of fans in women's cycling because they saw how exciting the racing was. They saw everything that the women have to offer. And now this year we're seeing all of those fans come in, in like a relatively normal year. It's still the pandemic, but things are, uh, there's still, there's more going on in the world now. And we're seeing more push for change in terms of the women's calendar and in terms of the, everything that happened with the prize money at Omelette Pet Newsblad and stuff like that. It was, it was so bizarre for all of us who've been in the sport for so long and, I mean, we just know that the prize money is like minuscule compared to the men, but all of these people who had no idea all of a sudden were all up in arms because those are all the new fans that we're acquiring into women's cycling. And the thing about all of those new fans and those people that are watching the races is that's how the money's going to come into the sport is just with more people watching, more people getting interested. We're going to have more money coming into the sport, which means that we will have more world tour racing in the future. We, we, there is hope. There is so much hope I feel for the future of this sport when it comes to this, because the pieces are in play now for us to be able to kind of push this war forward. And there's still a lot that needs to be done. There's still a lot of, you know, we were talking before the podcast started about the, the, there's only, you know, a handful of teams that are able to really be a professional team and then the jump between the world tour teams and the rest of the teams is really kind of wild. And especially in development, like we talked about when Flanders Classics showed all of their women's races after the men's races, even though it was only one hour of live coverage we got for those races, the viewing numbers were huge. 
I'm still like, I, I still get angry about, you know, the lack of racing and the lack of money and how, how much we have to fight for live coverage from a race like the Giro Rosa that we just so badly want it to be what it will never be that we are, that's we, that we're hoping, but it's just never going to happen. And, and the sport can hope as much as they want for the Giro Rosa to step up and be the race that we want it to be, but it'll just never happen, which is why we on this podcast support the women's tour and the great race of the North, all my fingers are crossed that that race happens at some point. <laughs> oh yeah. But, but yeah, I don't know. I think we're headed in a good direction here. A hundred percent. If we had this conversation four years ago, like you said, I think you and I, Abby, were going to races as roving live reporters using Twitter live to show bits of the race. And people were so grateful that they could just mm-hmm. get like a little image of the women racing. I think I was at Ghent Welverham filming them go up the Camelberg and then like commentating. And that was just on Twitter Live. Now we're four mm-hmm. years from 2017. Um, at least the top teams, it seems, it appears that more riders are getting paid what we would call a normal salary. Um, there's live coverage. The yeah, the professionalization of the peloton has definitely increased. We're seeing instead of just those 10 select riders that there's maybe 20 to 30 to 40 um, in that sort of top caliber. So it's, I'm really optimistic. There was a period there where I was like throwing my hands up in the air um, and stepped away from women's cycling for a period. But um, yeah, it's looking good. And I guess all things take time, right? Um, it's just taken a little more time. Yeah, I think it's important to look at it in a balanced way. Like I think I do get frustrated when like you talk about progress and people go, oh, but we've got this, this and this. And it, it's a really reductive way of looking at it because just because you've come so far doesn't mean you can't push for more. But at the same time, yeah, you do have to be realistic and say, yeah, we've, we have achieved these things. And that's the only way that you would continue to push forward anyway, because otherwise you would just give up all hope. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, with live coverage, I can't believe I'm saying this, but the UCI regulations that they brought in for the world tour for the mandatory live coverage is really seems to have made a difference. Um, I mean, I'm sure that was as a result of a lot of campaigning from other people, but it's, forcing them to do that has made a huge difference. We've seen so many more races live. Um, and, and also we've seen the consequence of that them actually like carry out a punishment for the Giro Rosa by demoting them for not doing that. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I'm going to go and lie down now. Cause I just complimented these. <laughs> I think, but it, it's, yeah, you've got to celebrate the small wins and there's been a ton of small wins because if we just sit here and complain about everything all the time, that's it's not the solution either, is it? And thank we God. We complain about things like 80% of the time. Yeah. So 20% of the time we have to give props to the... <laughs> well, give props to doing what they actually should be doing because it's their job. And the organisers <laughs> as well. It's not just, you know, it's the organisers for actually getting their acts together. It's It's, it's a... It's many different facets of mm. it. And, and for races like, I mean, 
races like Flanders Classics where that whole Omloop Head Newsblad prize money debacle that we don't really need to get into, but um, was more of a problem with the UCI's rules about prize money and the amount that needed to go to the men that they couldn't, there was no way to equal that out with the amount that they were forced to pay the men that makes literally no difference in the men's. We don't, well, we don't have to get into it. I'd be really interested to see, you mentioned um, how, cause Flanders classics showed the race had the races after the men's races, but for the Ardennes, the women's races were before. Mm-hmm. And I'd be really interested to see how that affected. Um, viewing uh, figures. Yeah. 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 Fair. yeah. It's probably out there. That's a- yeah, we can research that for next episode. I feel like at some point we should probably have like fact checks <laughs> on our episodes. No, but it's it correction well. corner last week. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> oh, that's what I was going to say. Like race organizers like Flanders Classics that are like, yeah, sure, there's still things that need improvement, but they they're having the women's races after the men's races we've seen has had a huge impact on the on the women's sport and on people watching it races like that that are having that are really setting the bar for how a race should be televised and how a race should be organized it's it it means that it's pushing all of the other races to kind of get up on their level and and continue to do the work that they're doing and it is also really interesting that the number of we haven't really had a ton of women's races that aren't side by side with men's at this point, we've just had like Trofeo Fredo Binda and then the, the stage races that aren't world tour. But as far as the world tour races, we've only had the ones that are alongside the men's. And it seems like as much as I love races that are standalone races. And I think if they have the money to properly do it, like the women's tour does, then it's absolutely, I'm all for it. But I think there's also a lot to be said with the men's races, having a women's race as well. And the infrastructure is already there. The cost isn't that much higher to add a women's race on to the men's race. And it's, it clearly does a lot as far as coverage and, and viewers, viewer numbers and, and all of that. I'll just so. throw in, in terms of sustainability, I have to go there. Of course, it makes sense to run men's and women's races at the same time, because you know, we've seen so many more of these men's teams start women's teams and even more are coming. Like, it just makes sense that they're there at the same time, using the same stuff almost. All the infrastructure is there, like you said. Um, so why wouldn't you do it? And then also the, the other brilliant thing with that is I think we've gained extra viewership from people who traditionally, and I'm going to speak from a Belgian perspective, who would sit there and just watch the men and had never had access to the women before, so it wasn't something on their radar. And then we saw it with the cyclocross. As soon as they started putting the women before, like my father-in-law, he'll sit down and enjoy the women's race and then watch the men's race. Um, it's not like he, he won't watch that. And he actually found the women's racing far more interesting this year than the men's racing. Um, and he's probably doing the same thing for for the women's racing now in the road scene because the racing finishes yeah afterwards. I think it's actually a really good thing to do because they park themselves. You miss the boring part of the men's race, catch the really exciting stuff at the end, and then you watch 
the women's race, which is generally exciting from start to finish, bias opinion. But um, so I think we've gained a lot of people who were just men's cycling fans, but now definitely um, learning the sport and they know the riders and it helps. You've got teams like Trek that are doing such a good job of promoting men and women equally and having that relationship between the two too. Yeah. Yeah. And did you see the video of the Movistar men's team watching Emma win in on the team bus at, uh, I think it was Romandy. They were racing Romandy and they had like the TV on in the team bus of Emma winning stage two. And it was really uh, cool. I didn't see that. That's awesome. They seem to it be doing a really good job of, of, um, integrating the men's and women's teams together. Actually, they did training yeah, camps I'm together impressed. and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, that was a long episode today, but a lot, a lot to kind of unpack. You guys have anything else to add before we sign out? I just love that we always go. It's going to be a short one. <laughs> <laughs> it will be a short one for sure. There's not many Someday. Questions. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to the Freewheeling Podcast. We will be back next week to discuss Valencia and uh, anything else that kind of pops up. But yeah, thank you, Amy and Lauren, for your time and your thoughts. And uh, goodbye. (laughs) Thank you and good night.